to that kid, having their outside life be a part of the whole process. It's almost like an equalizing thing because it's not something that's come out of a book. It's something that is actually for them and with them because they bring their whole selves into the room, not just their problem. And in that way, they're not just something that goes back into a book after. Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. Hi everyone, my name is Chris Dolman. Earlier this year, I consulted with some practitioners who work with children and families about how they go about ensuring that children can actively participate in developing and tailoring interventions that support them to respond to the problems that they're facing. I also spoke with parents who've accompanied their children in conversations with psychologists or other professionals about what's important from their perspective in terms of their children's participation in conversations with professionals. This is the first of a two-part episode where we explore this and related themes. During those conversations I just mentioned, a key question we were examining was how might practitioners go about sharing their practice wisdom and expertise with children, you know, offering tools and strategies and ideas without erasing children's experience or, you know, inadvertently disempowering them. We can also turn that question around and ask, you know, how might practitioners honour and make use of children's skills and creativity and know-how without diminishing their own practice skills and expertise? This is one of the practice challenges covered in Emerging Minds online course, Practice Strategies for Implementation. So if you are interested in this free online course or others, please visit our website at emergingminds.com.au. So in these two podcast episodes, we'll be hearing from three of these practitioners, Angela Coppy and Jane Walsh, they're psychologists with Adelaide Paediatrics, and Sarah McLean, a child psychologist with Emerging Minds. We'll also be hearing from Jess and Emmy, two of Emerging Minds family partners who have contributed to the development of our practice strategies courses, and share from their lived experience of working with practitioners in relation to their children's mental health and wellbeing. In the second podcast of this series, we'll be looking at responding to setbacks as well as some practice ideas for future-proofing children's newly acquired or developed or discovered skills. But for now, let's begin by hearing from child psychologists Sarah McLean, Angela Coppy and Jane Walsh. I asked them, when sharing ideas or tools or techniques with children to assist them to deal with problems, how do you encourage children to collaborate with you? Here's Sarah. I find it really helpful right from the start to set up a space where children are curious about themselves as learners about their own experience. For me, it's about striking that balance between myself as the expert who actually have, I have some things to offer, some ideas to offer around what might work, what other kids have found helpful, what other families might have found helpful, but also that they have ideas that they can contribute as well. So it's valuable for them to learn those kind of skills about themselves, to build their knowledge about themselves, um, not only in the here and now, but stuff that they can take into the future. So collaboration is incredibly important within the constraints of keeping them safe. I asked Sarah how she begins to create this context for collaboration. So I might lean into it by saying, you know, lots of children tell me this, this, this about fears and worries or lots of children have told me some good ideas about how they manage that. Is that something you'd be interested in hearing about? You know, do you want me to tell you about that? Or do you have your own ideas? And they might want to hear a little bit or whatever. Or they may have their own ideas. Um, And then I might say something like, some kids find pace breathing really helps, deep breaths. Or some kids might prefer to write in a journal or something. So do you have any idea about that? 
So what I'm trying to do is set up an expectation right from the start that I have some things to contribute and that's mostly based on what other children have told me. So at the start, it's kind of normalising that fears and worries are normal and that lots of kids have them. And luckily for me, they've told me a few things about what's worked for them. And I can share those ideas with you, but you're the boss of you. So you need to make a decision about what you you think might work for you. And some things you might not know about, and I can show you how those work. I also asked Angela Coppy how she begins to encourage children to collaborate with her in her practice. I also talk to them about different learning styles. Um, and that might have been a conversation that we've already had about how everyone learns differently. And so the way we work together might look different depending on how you learn. So some people learn best by listening to people talk about things. Other people like to really play with things and touch things. Some people like to be doing things or have things demonstrated. So we might have already had that conversation and that would then guide how I um, incorporate them in therapy. So I have lots of craft and art materials that they can use or it might be more online so using programs like Canva to create a poster or actually doing hands-on craft activities so I'll talk to them about that mountain metaphor about life being a mountain a journey and sometimes we and at the top of the mountain is our best life the best version of ourselves and what's important to us so our values and so sometimes we are heading straight up that mountain and the pathway is really clear and we know exactly where we're going and other times it might be like an avalanche has hit and so we feel really stuck or we might think we're on the right pathway and we recognize we've just been walking around and around in circles and we've ended up right back where we started so it's about recognizing that we're on the right or wrong pathway whether we're making helpful choices or unhelpful choices to be the best version of ourselves it's not to say that I'm any further up my mountain than the other people in the room but I can just see their mountain from a different perspective so I can guide them and help them choose the right pathways to be the best version of themselves. And here's Jane Walsh. So I'm really honest with kids when I don't know much about what they're interested in. So I'm not a big computer gamer, but a lot of the kids that I see are. So by default, I've got good at computer games, but I will say to them, look, I am, and they use try and use their language. So I'll say, I am a noob. So that's like someone that's new to computer gaming. I'm a noob at that, but you're a pro. So you need, I really would love it if you taught me about that. Or even with, um, I have no idea about hockey. I've never ever, I've never played hockey. I've never even seen a game of hockey. Can you teach me about that? And they love that, right? They love that because it's not often that an adult acknowledges that they don't know something or they're not good at something and then they're open to that suggestion too. So the more that they see you being interested in them forms the connection too. It all comes together with the, the importance of taking the time to begin with to get to know the child, the family, and um, what their interests are, what makes them tick, what they do in their spare time, what they do outside of school, what they find joy in, that then helps you develop that rapport and their trust in you that is the basis for any good work, whatever you then move into. But if you don't take that time, and often you might be three or four sessions in and you're thinking, oh, I haven't even started on anything in particular. But to race that and rush through that important foundation, you can't get to the treatment point or you can't get to the tool building time because they're not there yet with you. So it's so important that beginning time for them, that collaborative work and the rapport and the trust to happen. And then they're more likely to engage in things with you. I asked Jess, from her perspective as a parent, 
How important is it and why is it important that practitioners find ways to encourage children to collaborate with them and together tailor interventions that the child can draw upon in everyday life? Yeah, I think it's important to involve the children because if they don't have a good buy-in, then they're not going to succeed with whatever the tool is. So the practitioner has an idea about how the outcome will impact the child, but the child will help sort of make the decisions on how to use that tool. Learning about their specific circumstances as well, finding out how that's going to fit into their daily life, into the household, but also the physical space of the house as well. Um, Different tools might require different places or equipment and trying to get the child to kind of become a part of the problem solving aspect of whatever the tool is. I think when we're looking at tools and hoping that they'll have success with the child and the family, if you just give them something that's generic, it's probably going to miss the mark. Like you might have a kid who's really into like space and, you know, space exploration. So you might aim that tool towards that kind of interest area. If you try that with another child, it might not work. So you kind of need to make sure that they've got interest in it. Um, also making sure that the family is equipped to do it. If they need to purchase something or you needed something printed out, like those sorts of things can be real barriers if they're kind of not discussed early on and it's not going to be successful. I asked Sarah and Angela how important it is in their practice to be understanding the child's capabilities and interests, you know, like what they are into, what they're good at, in order to support that collaboration. Here's Sarah McLean. I think it's incredibly important. So if you can follow their interests and use an example from their lives, it really brings it to life for them. Straight away they can empathise with that character or that event or that skill they might have experience of being successful in that space which straight away changes the conversation into one of I've succeeded before and I can do that again and it also brings to life their experience maybe of you know tolerating or persisting through frustration and things like that so an example I'm thinking of would be a young person I'm working with who has anxiety If I were to ask him off the bat, you know, to generate some ideas about strategies, that might be a bit tricky. However, he's also a basketball player. So we talk about going back to when he was learning basketball, what was the first thing he learnt? And would you expect a person to be able to dribble the ball while running straight away? Yes or no, you know, or would you expect those skills to develop over time? So straight away, he's able to kind of relate to the fact that this is a learning journey and every day he might get a little bit better at whatever it is that I'm asking him to do, or he might have days where he just can't pull it together. So straight away, he's kind of, he's in that world um, and he can draw on his own experiences of mastery and success and perseverance and optimism and interest I appreciate Sarah's emphasis here on these conversations around children's skills and capabilities and how they can help children speak about and reconnect with their own successes and competencies. Now here's Angela Coppy. I think knowing what their interests are helps you come up with examples that they find interesting and they're going to relate to. So, you know, for example, I had a kid uh, recently really into computers and every time he walks into the room, he'll comment on any new technology that's there. And so I know that technology is going to really bring him in. So when we're talking about his meltdowns, we talk about the computer shutting down and he calls it blue screen mode where the computer just freezes and goes into blue screen. And so we're able to use that example that he really connects with that now becomes language that his parents can say to him. And I think it's more relatable too. And I think parents 
find it easier to use that language because it seems rehearsed if it's language that's coming from me, if I'm telling them, say this, do this, or if it's something that's organic, that's come out of therapy, that's related to the kids' interests, then it's more often going to be language that's used in the house anyway. And it doesn't seem like, oh, this is something that Angela's telling us to do. This is just something that's part of our family now. Jane Walsh was also adamant about the importance of drawing on children's creativity and interests in developing interventions with children. So the effectiveness of the tools that you create with a child is so dependent on making sure it's personable to them. So whenever I start working with children, I always, in part of my rapport building and my getting to know you, it is about working out where the interests are. So we do activities like 10 things about you. So I'll know, are they a Minecraft kid? Are they a soccer kid? So I'll have some idea about their interests. And then as we then move into, okay, so let's look at some tools that we need to work on. I'll try it as best I can to incorporate what I already know is their interests and then always put to them how that might fit for them as well. So you create, if you're working on emotional regulation and a child is really into Roblox, which is a really common computer game at the moment. Um, so we'll look at recreating some of the Roblox characters and look at their facial expressions. Um, and so we almost create our own kind of emotional recognition uh, flip book or something and we use those, but it's it's using it's something that they're interested in. So they're already engaged because they're already loving the Roblox pictures. Or, um, you know, I've done some things around anxiety management with kids that are real, really into sport. So we'll talk about, say, a football team and we'll talk about moments in the game and what might be anxiety provoking for that player you know when they're about to kick the goal and what do they do you know you ask the kid what do you do like when you're about to kick the goal oh well you know I notice some of the players that they pull up their socks or they take their mouth gutter or whatever what do you think they're thinking so you're trying to create what's already part of their world and include that in the tools that you then develop with them. Angela and Jane have highlighted for us the significance and usefulness of finding cultural metaphors and symbols that are resonant for children. I asked Emmy, one of Emerging Minds family partners, from her perspective as a parent, how important it is that the practitioner is familiar with the child's interests and makes good use of this in their work with the child and family. It's completely vital, 100%. So um, for the practitioner, for a start, to be finding out about this stuff um, signals to the child that the practitioner is interested in them and wants to get to know them. It also allows for the child to be more than their problem. So they're there as a person, as a whole person, not just as somebody who needs something fixed. I asked our interview guests what difference do they think it makes to children? to have a sense of contributing to the innovation and development of these tools and ideas that they can subsequently use uh, to respond to the problem. Here's Angela and then Emmy. I think they feel validated, yeah, that they have taken part and they have some ownership over what they're doing, that it's not just something that their therapist has told them, you need to go away and do this. They actually want to do it because they've been involved in the creation of that particular strategy. You can use those different examples in therapy sessions with other children and say, hey, I had this really great session with this kid and he recommended doing this or this was his idea or this was her idea and she did that. And some kids go, oh yeah, well, that's amazing. I'm going to do that too. Or I'll tweak that a little bit and make that mine. And so it's a collaborative approach with other different clients without them necessarily having to work together. 
think, you know, kids, they're used to school, you know, where and even parenting, where they're really told what to do, how to do it, why and why they're doing it. And I think a child would be expecting the same thing to happen in that situation. So to actually get in there and find out that, oh, no, actually, I must to be a part of this process and my opinions matter and uh, they mean something and it's not just tokenistic, it's real. I think that would be, you know, surprising. So that when they're getting the help for that problem, it's more than that because they already know about that. So they need they need to kind of start to build up a sense of who they are beyond what's going on. It's kind of like an open wound, you know. To me, when I think back at the times of trauma, it's very much like a, like an open wound. I used to feel like everyone could see this wound that I had. And I think the kids probably felt a little bit like that too. Maybe that's that's how people experience trauma. I don't know. That's definitely how I did. Um, and so, you know, they need to, to find other ways to see themselves in the world apart from this wound that they're trying to patch up. Having their life, you know, their outside life be a part of the whole process means that it's almost like, an, again, like an equalising thing because it's not something that's come out of a book, you know. It's something that is actually for them and with them because they bring their whole selves into the room, um, not just their problem. And in that way, bringing their whole selves into the room, they're not just something that goes back into a book after. And, you know, when they finish this, the session, they go back and they continue to be the person they are, everything. So it would seem illogical to walk in the door and throw out the rest of you. You know, you walk in the door with all of you, you might as well make all of you a part of that process. I think they own the process and it's empowering and it makes it real and authentic and it makes it more doable. Both Angela and Emmy highlight the potential for these conversations to also be contributing to a child's sense of ownership of the tools or strategies that are being developed, as well as you know, making a difference to how they see themselves and how they see their relationship with the problem. I also asked Emmy and Jess what it was like for them as parents to see this tailoring of interventions for their children. Yeah, oh, really relieving. I would see a practitioner who believed in what they were doing, you know. They're there to actually make a difference because they're taking the time to make this session about my child, that my child isn't just anyone, they're actually a child or a real child with real real things going on um, and in real life. And it, it would mean that I could feel like things could be brought to the table and listened to. Yeah, definitely was make a huge difference. Give me a lot of relief. I think that it's quite powerful because as a parent, when you get to the point of asking a professional for help, you've tried everything, right? Like you've exhausted the options. So by going to a professional and them saying, your child's not the problem, actually, we can solve this together as a team and as a, a group effort. I think it gives them the idea that this is actually solvable. This is not my child. There's this other thing going on. And I guess it gives them hope as well that there is actually some steps we can take. Here's the practical end of what we wanted. We want this to be better. Here's how we start that journey. These comments by Emmy and Jess highlight for me how the process of tailoring interventions collaboratively with children can be significant for parents as well. It can contribute to shifting parents' perspectives of their child and really support their hopes that things can turn around in the future. That brings us to the end of part one of this two-part podcast series. Thank you again to our guests, 
Emerging Minds family partners, Emmy and Jess, for sharing their ideas and insights from their lived experience. And, and thanks too to Angela Coppy, Jane Walsh and Sarah McLean for their generosity in sharing their practice reflections from their work with children and families. In part two, we'll be exploring some practice ideas for responding when children and families experience setbacks in dealing with problems, as well as some practice ideas for future-proofing children's newly acquired skills in dealing with problems. So thanks so much for joining us today and we look forward to your company next time. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds. The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.